Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and today we are going to talk to historian Raymond Blake and his book on Newfoundland's early rejection and subsequent acceptance of the idea of joining the Canadian Federation. Raymond Blake is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Regina. He is a longtime political and social historian who has written numerous books and articles. Originally from Newfoundland, he wrote his dissertation on Newfoundland's entry into the Confederation, published under the title Canadians at Last, and this was put out by the University of Toronto Press in 1994. This book was republished a decade later with a new introduction, and he's also published a history of Newfoundland-Ottawa relations in, in 2015. This book is called Lions or Jellyfish. Today we're going to talk about his newest book, Where Once They Stood, Newfoundland's Rocky Road Towards Confederation, which he co-authored with Melvin Baker and was published by the University of Regina Press in 2019. Raymond, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Well, Greg, it's great to hear you, and I'm delighted about this, and it's wonderful to connect with you yet again. Well, Raymond, I have to tell our audience that uh, we worked together for many years. We worked in the same policy institute that was connected to the University of Regina, and then as uh, faculty colleagues, although in different departments at the University of Regina. So it's really a pleasure to reconnect for this podcast. Yes, indeed. And you, in many ways, are responsible for why I'm at the University of Regina. So thanks for that. Well, this book uh, that you have written is really about the shifting attitudes towards Canada by a separate polity. And I use that word advisedly. Uh, and that polity is Newfoundland. And you cover the period from the 1860s to the late 1940s. So tell us what motivated you and your co-author, Melvin Baker, to write this book. You know, I'm, I've been always interested, as you noted at the outset, uh, you know, going back, I've done a number of things in between, but, you know, my first real introduction to professional history as an academic uh, was um, when I looked at Newfoundland and Canada around the time of Union in 1948-49. And I've always looked at this primarily from the Canadian perspective, looking at Canada integrated Newfoundland, looking at Ottawa Newfoundland relations, and really interested in sort of the bigger picture of Canadian history. My co-author on this, Melvin Baker, is an excellent Newfoundland historian who knows the Newfoundland side extremely well. So we thought that this would be, we could bring our strengths together and one of the things that we both shared a concern about was the history that had been written about the earlier attempt at Confederation in 1869 and the more recent one in the 1940s always presented Newfoundlanders as being less than particularly engaged and smart about this. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about this, but in the 1860s, it was the Newfoundlanders were uneducated. They were 
unsophisticated. They didn't understand what was happening. And lo and behold, that narrative was carried forward into the 19, about the writings about the 1940s as well. Yet again, you know, Newfoundlanders were duped. They didn't understand. You know, they made mistakes. And if only they were a little brighter, they would have chosen a different course. So what we wanted to do was to go back and really examine some of those issues and bring into focus in particular the voter, the citizen, the person who actually made the decision, uh, certainly from narratives that were created for him in the 1860s and for him and her uh, in the 1940s. Well-read Canadians generally know about the referendum in 1948 that led to the entry into the Federation, but they're not likely to be aware of the earlier referendum that was held in 1869 when a majority of Newfoundlanders, at least those who voted, rejected Confederation. So as our witness to yesterday, take us back to 1869. Who supported the idea of joining Canada and why? And who was against the idea and why? Well, you know, Craig, it's, it is interesting of course only men could vote in 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 the late 19 mid 19th century in newfoundland of course most of canada and the western world but of those men that could vote you know nearly 80 percent of them did vote in that election and there were as is always the case you know two particular two particular groups in that election although it wasn't actually a referendum as was the situation in 1948. But clearly it was a referendum because the issue of confederation was the only issue in that election. And the parties even referred to themselves as the Confederates and the anti-Confederates. And it's really interesting because the situation is almost reverse when we come to, you know, eight decades later in the 1940s. But in the 1860s, the, many of the elite in Newfoundland, the, the economic elite, the, you know, the, the, the judicial elite, the establishment, so to speak, were very much in favor of union with Canada, as was the British government. You know, the British government had sent a governor to Newfoundland, Musgrave, and, and, and Stephen Hill, and had really wanted them to push for confederation. And Newfoundlanders uh, didn't participate in the Charlottetown Conference. They did participate in the Quebec Conference in 1864. And two of their, uh, two of their uh, representatives, uh, Amro Shea, and Frederick Carter came back from Quebec City in 1864 and were really enthusiastic about it. But for a variety of reasons, you know, the election on Confederation didn't really happen until 1869. And, and there you add, you know, many of the people in St. John's, they were the center of the, of the colony in many ways, uh, were very much in favor of and and so it became an issue of in the election and the anti-confederates were led in in many ways by you know charles fox bennett who was a merchant he spent considerable time in 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 england but 
like many people, we would come to Newfoundland for part of the year and then go back to the old country, so to speak. And and so there were there were two very clear groups that were involved in in this campaign. Just before you explain about the the, the sort of the personality, uh, particularly behind the other group, I want to return to Charles Fox Bennett because it struck me that uh, first of all he was 76 years old in in that time at 1869 he was a leading merchant in St. John's but he spent a lot of time in England and uh, he struck me as being a very opportunistic I'd call him a self-interested carpetbagger motivated by his own self-interest uh uh and he really uh I don't think reflected a kind of genuine Newfoundland nationalism, yet he was very effective. Why was he effective? You know, we make that point in in the book. And when we talk about Charles Fox Bennett, you know, we, we make the point that he was one of those few business leaders in Newfoundland who had actually began to think about Sort of the internal, the, the internal development beyond, you know, taking resources from the sea. He was into distilling. He was into breweries. He was into mining. And one of the things that he was extremely worried about was his own particular self-interest. So you're absolutely right in many ways. But yet he also was back in 1855 when Newfoundland, when Newfoundland finally received responsible government the last of the British colonies to do so. You know, he never had any great affinity with with that assembly and that democracy. And he was thinking that it would be better if we were still run by the governor and the uh, sort of the elite advisory council. But nevertheless, what Charles Fox Bennett was able to do was to tap into that Newfoundland nationalism. He returned to Newfoundland just, you know, probably four or five months before the election. And the first thing that he did was to buy himself a schooner uh, so that he could travel the northeast part of the island, uh, you know, talking about the dangers of Confederation. Then he did the thing on the sort of the, the south part of the island. And at at this particular time, uh, the western, most western, most northern regions are still a part of the French shore, which extends from, you know, the, the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713. So there weren't any actual voters in that area. People weren't allowed to settle there. And But yet what Charles Fox Bennett did, and he created a narrative that tied into the, 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 the fears of, the, of many people in Newfoundland. And one of the things that Stephen Hill, who was the governor, had written a couple of years before uh, to the British colonial office and said, you know, one of the things that really surprises me about Newfoundland is this really just, you know, almost visceral reaction to any sort of taxation. And, 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 And Bennett sort of played up on that. But Bennett was in many ways... Uh, I think it's just a superb, uh, a superb politician. And, and perhaps because of Bennett, a number of people who have written about it have said, you know, have written about this period have said, you know, here was a propagandist who took issues and sold them to an illiterary, an illiterate population. 
One of the things that we found, and I think both Melvin and I would agree there needs to be more work done on this, but elections in Newfoundland, probably not like elections elsewhere in British North America, were, you know, these were pivotal moments in in the life of individuals. And the fact that 80% of people came out to cast a ballot, and sometimes they, I shouldn't say cast a ballot because the secret ballot came just a few years later, but people went to the polling stations to give their, to, 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 to register and to give their vote. And they went in numbers that was simply astounding to think people had to travel sometimes 15 and 20 kilometers by boat to be able to cast their, to cast their vote. And, and people did that. And, and one of the things we talk about in the book is, you know, the notion of Newfoundland as an independent, well, uh, I won't say independent because it's not true, but it had autonomy over its local affairs that came, of course, with responsible government. And many of them, we believe, saw the act of voting as an instrument of being, a, you know, a part of the British world tied into something that, you know, as a, as a part of the British world, you value political citizenship. And, and what the narrative that Bennett created was about, we think, two of the most onerous responsibilities of citizenship. One, military service and taxation. Nobody wants to do either one of those. And, and in Newfoundland, there was a tremendous fear of both. As late as the Napoleonic Wars, many Newfoundlanders were worried about being impressed into the British Navy. And even during, and this isn't a little bit of an aside, Gray, but in 1916, 1917, when during the First World War, the governor at the time, Governor Anderson, did a tour around Newfoundland to try to encourage people to enlist, to enlist in the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. And when he went to a number of communities, he found there was not a single individual male of, 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 you know, an age that could be conscripted into, could be conscripted into the, into the army or the navy. And he asked the people there, where are the men? And once they sort of relaxed a little bit, they said, well, they've all been hidden into the forest because when they see a British <laughs> vessel coming of any sort, you know, they just run. And that's a hundred years later after the America or after the Napoleonic Wars. But in the 19, in the 1860s, Charles Fox Bennett said, you know, if you join Canada, you're going to be fighting against the Americans. This is one of the reasons they're creating union. We have no fight or struggle with the Americans. And I think the phrase he uses, do you want, you know, the, the sons of your sons to be bleached on the prairie deserts in Western Canada, protecting the uh, Canada against the United States. So he really played up that military angle. And of course, taxation. Everything was taxation. So he really created a narrative around those owners' responsibilities of citizenship. And, and people took voting seriously. They took it very seriously and they bought, he bought into Mr. Charles Fox Bennett's narrative, whereas the other narrative of what's good about Confederation, um, didn't really sort of play out very well at all. No, and the results uh, demonstrated that. And if you could just, uh, in a sense, uh, describe the results 
as well as uh, explain what happened after in terms of uh, the loss, because I understand it was a pretty significant uh, victory on the part of the anti-Confederates. And I was struck by what Prime Minister John A. Macdonald stated in the wake of the defeat, and you this is a quotation that you provide in the book, and that is, the terms offered by us, that is the new um, federation, and acceded to by the government of, I of, of the island, that was the government at the time, were so liberal that in a pecuniary point of view we made a bad bargain as the acquisition of the island is of no importance to Canada. So in McDonald's view, uh, he said, we can wait, therefore, with all the patience for the inevitable reaction that must take place in a year or two. So that was a very prescient statement, but clearly the, the government of Canada realized that there was no point in doing anything about this defeat except to wait. What's your perspective on this? You know, it, that's that's an interesting point in the book, and it, and it's interesting you pick up on that, that that quotation, Greg. But it's interesting to note as well that Steve, this note in 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 which this quote comes from, is a reply from uh, to from John A. Macdonald to a suggestion from Stephen Hill, the governor, who wrote and said, you know, we made a terrible mistake in Newfoundland. This question was clearly too important to leave to the people. And what he suggested to John A. Macdonald was, let's go ahead with the British government and make this confederation uh, a reality. And in time, those people who voted against it will celebrate the decision we made because they don't know what's good for them. But, you know, which really says a lot about what, you know, the governor thought of the democratic process. But you're absolutely right. The defeat for the Confederate forces was overwhelming. It was very clear that there was, you know, that there was no real interest at all in Confederation at this particular time. And even in subsequent elections, you know, people would say, you know, we, we really don't want to bring back uh, this notion of a vote on Confederation. And in, in fact, political uh, alliances in Newfoundland were very fluid then, uh, probably as they are today. And, and a number of the, the political parties would frequently use this, you know, they're up to confederation. It's almost something like in Saskatchewan now, you try to target the other party, they're gonna, they're going to nationalize, or they're going to privatize the crowns. And, and, and it was like, they're gonna use confederation. They're gonna bring you in. So both the liberals and the conservatives use this at different times as a scare tactic. So it really shows, you know, in, in many ways, the, the animosity towards Canada, at least when it came to, to joining them. And, and what you see happening is John A. Macdonald realized, and they had offered in 1869, you know, a special clause uh, to Canada's Militia Act in a way to deal with some of the uh, anti-Confederate rhetoric, and that is Newfoundlanders would be exempt from some service in uh, Canada's Canada's uh, Militia Act. And as well, uh, John A. Macdonald and the, the Conservatives offered what many in Newfoundland at the time thought were very generous packages, uh, uh, increasing the, 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 
the terms of union by as much as $100,000, which we're talking now, you know, several millions of dollars in today's currency. And, and, and so there was a real sense that you know, we probably made a mistake, John A. Macdonald said, and, and as did many people, John A. Macdonald, people like um, R.B. Bennett later in the 1930s, um, they said, there's no need of rushing. You know, this will take, take its course, and eventually Newfoundland will join. But, of course, it took 80 years. And what happened in that time was, and we talk about this in the book, is the increased Canadianization of Newfoundland, um, and and we see this the Newfoundland banks moving or the Canadian banks move in in the 1890s after the bank crash. So if you go in little communities in much say little, but some of the larger communities in Newfoundland, you would see the Royal Bank or the Bank of Montreal, the same banks that you would see, you know, whether in Chatham, New Brunswick, or somewhere else. And and, and so there is a and of course the United Church of Canada, uh, you know, becomes a part or Newfoundland becomes a part of that. Uh, people from the Methodist communities are sending their kids to, are sending their kids to, uh, uh, you know, Mount Allison or the Catholic to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to Anakinish in, in Saint Evex, and and of course the ferry system is a real issue for Newfoundland, making sure that ferry connection between Newfoundland and Canada, and the Newfoundland government lobbies oh so vociferously to get the Canadians to sort of contribute to this ferry. So there's this there's this Canadianization we call it, but what is also happening is Newfoundland follows a Canadian model. And that is, you know, the John A. Macdonald policy of tariffs, immigration, and railways. Uh, Newfoundland does at least two of those. Um, they don't put as much effort into immigration, which is probably a mistake. But they do put a lot of effort into building a transcontinental Iowa, uh, railway. And the railway runs through the part of the country where there are no living human beings, for the most part. And the reason that it goes through the interior is the great hope is that this interior, following the Canadian model, can be developed. And over time, it will become sort of the economic engine of, of, of the country. And there does develop over time, you know, some, some, some mines, uh, pulp and paper, and, and, and farming didn't quite work out as they had hoped. But nevertheless, there was the sense that development can happen. And one of the things that Charles Fox Bennett and a number of other people have said, we can do this ourselves. But what is really extraordinary about this is by the 1890s, they're turning to Canadian promoters. They're turning to Canadian developers to come in and develop the, the interior. And so you get to Robert Reeds, you get the people from Nova Scotia, you get connections with the CPR, you get connections with the Bank of Montreal. And, and so there's a real Canadianization going on. And as you probably know, and of course you know, um, you know, things were going along reasonably well, not great. But then the Great Depression hits. And then the Great Depression. But the other thing that's going on is Newfoundland is interested in confederation when the economy dips. You know, in the early part of the 20th century, um, when, you know, there's a, there's a downturn in the economy, 
in the 1930s when there's a downturn in the economy, Newfoundland says we should consider confederation. They do it again in, in the 1890s. When things are going well, fish prices are high. Uh, when the economy seems to be booming with the carrying trade, uh, Newfoundland has no interest in confederation. Canada is. Um, but, you know, they can never sort of get on the same, they can never get on the same page. And the 1930s, of course, is when, you know, the rubber hits the road. Uh, Newfoundland, for a variety of reasons, now, many people in Newfoundland like to think it's the contributions to the First World War, but the railway is never really pays a profit or even breaks even, never breaks even ever. And, and by the 1920s, the Newfoundland government takes it over because it's in such dreadful state. And during the 1930s, the Great Depression, you know, unemployment, poverty, the cover of the book shows a, a march on the old colonial building, the seat of government. And, and, the, and the province is really, shouldn't call it province, the colony is really struggling and they surrender responsible government and are governed by a, a committee of six called the Commission of Government, three Newfoundlanders, three appointed by Great Britain, and but Canada is very much involved in this as well. And there's a tremendous pressure from the British on the Canadian Prime Minister, R.B. Bennett, to, you know, to, to step in and help, and they do from time to time. But, you know, Canada itself is facing its own crisis, and the last thing that it wants is another bankrupt colony to have to deal with, so they're not particularly interested at that particular time. Well, can you describe uh, the National Convention briefly and then be our witness to yesterday a second time in terms of the referendum of 1948? Who led the pro and anti-Confederate sides in that referendum? What were their narratives? Uh, and what had changed since the earlier election in 1869? And what had not changed? Yeah, you know, this is, you know, one of the most exciting things. And the book really is heavily weighted, although it covers the old period. But we really, we really look at, look at the, the, the probably, you know, two thirds of the book is the 1945 onward. One of the things that really became quite obvious in, by the 19, you know, by the early 1940s is, you know, Newfoundland could no longer, you know, in this, you know, this post-war period, the Newfoundland could no longer be governed by a commission of government. You know, the demand for return to democracy and return to responsible government, you know, it was quite powerful. And in the, the, the British were, I think we're instrumental in this. Not that they, not that they set the, they, they set the agenda. They didn't control the vote. Now, some people have argued, you know, the British actually intervene and, and, you know, rigged the election. People like Clement Hatley, 
who was the at one time the, uh, the minister for uh, the Dominions in, in Winston Churchill's government. He became, of course, the prime minister in due course. Like these people were great social democrats. You know, he and Lord Addison and a variety of others, you know, they understood that Newfoundland had to had to move forward and move towards sort of a democratic model. Attlee himself visited Newfoundland in 1942, spent several several weeks. And one of the things that he becomes very concerned about is will the old establishment get control of Newfoundland again? And Attlee himself is very much involved, of course, in the new social security state. He's very much concerned about what we call in the book social citizenship and the state providing, you know, assistance to people, not only in times of great need, but as a normal course of life. We call this social citizenship. And T.H. Marshall is, you know, has written a lot about this. And Adelaide decides that Newfoundland will have a national convention, that they will decide options to put before the electorate in a national referendum, and people will then vote. And Athlete decides, with input from others, of course, that people must have lived in the district. The, 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 there's, you know, 40-odd uh, of them, 40-odd districts. And then in order to be a member of the National Convention, you must have a residency requirement because it was not uncommon in Newfoundland at this time and even later, you know, that the, the St. John's elite would send someone out to the far reaches of the island and stand for election and they would never see them again. So Adelie said, that's not going to happen. We want the people themselves to make this decision. So the National Convention elected 45 individuals. Most of them were well-to-do middle class, but they weren't all from the elite. You had ministers, you had social workers, you had cooperative workers, and you had Joseph R. Smallwood, who, who was a, a, a farmer at this particular time in, in Bonavista area. And the national convention we try to claim in the book is the, really the beginnings of the debate about confederation. And that's in 1945 when they meet September 1945, and the and the vote is held uh, three years later in in July uh, or first one in June in 1948. And in that convention, two groups emerge, and it's really interesting now to read the transcripts and listen to the recordings, because the national convention was recorded and broadcast every evening over the government radio service. So even though people could not you know, go into the assembly and watch, they could listen on radio, and they did. They listened by the hundreds. And people were captivated by this. And there were two groups. The largest group, about 29 of the 45, were those who tried to make the same arguments that Charles Fox Bennett did. And their line, quite simply, was, are you going to admit to the world that we can't govern ourselves and be an independent nation of the world? Very powerful message. But at the same time, they denigrated the new, what I would call the social security state. 
the notion of family allowances, they would stand up in this assembly when they were brought up and say, this is the most inequitous piece of legislation that was ever introduced in the Canadian Parliament. And in Newfoundland, we can take care of our own children. Do we want to say that we are such that we depend on the government for handouts? And of course, if you look around Australia, you look New Zealand, you look at UK, you look especially at Canada, by the 1940s, people like Mackenzie King and others, you know, Mackenzie King, you know, was very much a conservative in many ways. And talking about deficit spending and giving people monies just in many ways horrified him. But he could read the tea leaves and he knew the way the world was going. Joseph R. Smallwood and a small band within the, within the National Convention immediately said, going forward, Newfoundland cannot go back to this low tax state. It must embrace the new changes, the new senses of citizenship that others are having around the world. And, and Newfoundlanders deserve that as much as anywhere else. So they begin to talk about not political citizenship, not nationalism in the way that Charles Fox Bennett did, but they begin to think about nationalism as what the state can do for each individual citizen. So this debate becomes very polarized uh, within a matter of two or three weeks of the National Convention, of the National Convention beginning its proceedings and its debates. And, and so those two groups, those two groups do then, you know, eventually carry this, this debate into the referendum, into the referendum debates that really take place once the convention shuts down. But I should say one other thing, Greg, before I give you a chat again, and that is the National Convention decided that they would send a delegation to London, England to see what the British government would do if they decided to become an independent state. And the British government here basically said nothing. If you choose to go independent, if you go back to responsible government, you want to be an independent nation, you're on your own. The, 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 the delegation that went to Ottawa met Mr. Mackenzie King and, and of course, the, the, the real proponent of this is Louis Saint-Laurent, who is Minister of External Affairs and eventually Prime Minister. And, and of course, they really believe that this is the opportunity to bring Newfoundland into Canada. And so they offer somewhat relatively generous terms. Uh, of course, by now, Goose Bay and Gander are two strategic uh, positions in the, in the, you know, the post-war world. Uh, Labrador, they all know as considerable wealth. Even then, the fisheries generated considerable wealth. And, and they thought that this is the way to bring Newfoundland into confederation, which had been the dream of the fathers of confederation since the 1860s. And they also thought that if we can do it coming out of this national convention, we'll avoid the, the politics of it all and it becoming a political issue in a way that it had in 1860. 1869. Well, thank you very much, Raymond. Just uh, quickly tell us, there were two referendums. What was the outcome in both of the referendums in 1948? It was a close call in the end, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested as to why two separate referendums were held. 
that the, the British government had decided that in the terms of the referendums that there would be a clear majority. And in the, in the first referendum in June 1948, there was no clear, there was no clear winner. Uh, Confederation uh, did well, but it came in second place about, you know, uh, I think around 40% of the vote. Uh, I, I, I need to check exactly the, the numbers, Craig, but, uh, responsible government had a little bit more, around 44% of the vote. And then there was a small group that wanted to retain commission of government. So the first referendum had three options. Responsible government as it existed in 1933, confederation with Canada, or the commission of government for another five years. Commission of government was dropped in the second referendum. And then it was a, it was a runoff between the Confederates and those who wanted, who wanted to return to responsible government or are frequently referred to as the anti-Confederates. And in that election, it was very close, you know, 42% to 48%. One of the things that we talk about in the book, and we wish we had more information on this, but it is how women voted in that referendum. Women could not vote in Newfoundland in 1925. And in the first election that women could vote, there are some indications that, you know, they voted overwhelmingly. They came out to the polls. And one of the things that we talk about here is it seems, and one of the things that Joe Joseph R. Smallwood, the leader of the Confederate forces in Newfoundland, did is he played up Canada's social programs. He talked about family allowances, old age pension, unemployment insurance, and one of the one of the great one of the great campaign strategies when he would go to any community and he spent most of his time. He spent most of his time campaigning outside of St. John's, outside of the Avalon Peninsula, the urban part of St. John's. And one of the things that he would do was he would bring the children up on stage and he would say to, uh, you know, whether it was little Johnny or, or little Susie, he would, he would say, Susan, how many brothers and sisters do you have? And they would say, Newfoundland had large families. We have, Eight, and then Mr. Smallwood would say, "Well, do you know? And each you and your brothers and sisters would each get eight dollars a month from the government of Canada to help your mom care and raise and provide for your well-being." And he would say, "This family allowance check is paid to your mom." And, and so that's a powerful message in a community where cash was not, was not great. Uh, many people were living in parts of the island that were isolated, accessible only by boat. People had experienced the Second World War. Newfoundlanders were living all over Canada, United States. They were sending back remittances to their families. And people were beginning to realize that the way that we are living, and Smallwood made this point continually, the way that we're living is out of tune with what's happening in the rest of North America. 
And with social programs, social citizenship, although Smallwood didn't use that word, uh, is something that is now the new reality. And we believe that women played an instrumental role in pushing Confederation into majority territory. Well, Raymond, that's uh, fascinating. And to end on Joey Smallwood, the introduction of uh, family allowances in uh, Newfoundland and uh, the fact that those checks would go directly to women, probably the first time they had a uh, control of their own money and some, at least some of the outports. But uh, this was very, very interesting. And I know that uh, our audience rarely gets a chance to hear the history of such a unique polity. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Craig. It's been great. Well, this interview was with Professor Raymond Blake. He is the co-author with Melvin Baker of Where Once They Stood, Newfoundland's Rocky Road Towards Confederation, published by the University of Regina Press in 2019. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you've liked what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and Consortium of Canadian Scholarly Book Publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on October 23rd, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.